beloved, you are now tuned in to Three Black Men, a podcast by three black men where we talk about theology, culture, and the world around us. The following content may not be suitable if you ain't real enough. Listener discretion is advised because real recognize real. Here's the hope when we look familiar. everybody welcome back to the podcast my name is robert my name is sam and i'm trey and we are the three black men hey look at us we made it (laughs) and indeed indeed, and we have a wonderful guest a great guest yeah a great we only got the bestest guestest in the house over here (laughs) that's right that's right first time on three black men Hey, Camille Hernandez, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much. Hi, everybody. (laughs) Listen, Camille is a theopoet, theologian, writer, author, just freshly minted author, just the duel of authorship all over her, and all around great person. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Mm. You you forgot to put the trauma informed on on the front part of that. So people know. Yeah. People know. Mm. Minute, we got to know who we dealing with right now. No. I am trauma informed. We yes. don't talk to her like she regular. Yeah. True. <laughs> That's right. True. Moisturized and happy. So <laughs> we are talking about your book, The Hero and the Whore: Reclaiming Healing and Liberation Through Stories of Sexual Exploitation in the Bible. Hey. I'm excited. I I guess my first question that I would just throw out there is why did you feel like this book is necessary right now? Like, obviously, it's a good book. And I'm saying obviously because if people have read your writing, it's <laughs> obvious that it would be good, but it is. Like, why now? Um. So there's a lot of ways to approach that question. Um, I think right now it's because there's like how many documentaries out on streaming platforms of religious cults that center the experience of white people, specifically white women um, in the word that they use like high control environments, right? And how many books are written about purity culture in the mainstream that are written by white women? Um, And how many movements of racial reconciliation from churches that we have that uses this white girl, man of color dynamic? How often do we see that in church? And so where are the women of color? When are their stories heard outside of a tragic event? And I I just think that this book is necessary right now because there's a lot of conversations that just need to be had, but a lot of ways that we need to be exposed to the violence that's being done to those who are most marginalized, be it 
women of color, queer people of color, trans and gender expansive people of color. Um, <clears throat> and there also needs to be a reckoning with the violence that we've all been complicit in. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that's very real. And I want to make sure that I, I'm not misattributing or misdescribing what you're trying to do here. Is it would it be fair to say that this was important for you to do because it is necessary um for you as a, a woman of color, a black woman, a Filipino woman to take up space in this way, um watching it. Do you think that's fair to say? Yeah, I, I think so. I think um yeah it's necessary for me and all my identities to <clears throat> take up space but also create space um for those who have some of the identities that I have and those who don't have the identities that ha I have but I think taking up space is 100% necessary um in this entire process yeah I love yeah. that Go ahead, Rob. Okay, I <laughs> am so, so the intro for me, I loved it. And you kind of, and this is speaking to, you were talking about all these documentaries and whatnot. And I loved in the introduction where you're talking about the frictionless gospel. You're talking mm -hmm. about like this concept of God that kind of leads to these controversies that we're, we're talking about. And at one point you said, what do you do when leaders can express deep and heartfelt emotions about God, but are unable to recognize or acknowledge their own complicity in systems that continually harm people? And for some time, I thought about like the evangelical God, especially the white evangelical God, makes sense with all of the, the patterns of abuse that mm -hmm. we see in churches is because people are merely emulating the God that they have come to know, right? And so talk about that a little bit, just you know, just freestyle <laughs> riff on that a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what comes to mind right now is that um, <clears throat> it's the words awful and terrific. The word awful comes from I mean, awesome and terrific. The word awesome comes from the word awful. The word terrific comes from the word terrifying. And like, these are words that we use explicitly in worship, right? And these are words that we use in our like everyday vernacular to mean a really good thing. And they're actually like words that were created, not specifically in English, but I'm like thinking of English as the example. But these were words that were created in like pursuit of God, right? God is awesome because there is an awfulness to God. God is terrific because there's a terror and a part of God is terrifying. But <clears throat> when you have like a, a people or an identity or a, um, a population that seeks to own and claim everything, and like, yes, I'm talking about white people <laughs> right now, then then the awfulness in awesome is attributed to whiteness. The terrifying and terrific is attributed to whiteness, right? Because they want to own everything. So they they become the harbingers of chaos, of pain, of hurt, <clears throat> knowingly or unknowingly. Um, and, you know, I've spent a decade in the evangelical church and 
I'm still untethering a lot of my own thought processes on God. Um, and a big part of that was having to like, having to write this book because I wrote in, I wrote into the stories about and into the stories that were like really strangely used, right? Like women, suburban women of privilege were like, I'm Rahab. And I'd be like, mm, not really, you know, <laughs> or, or like, um, people saying like, well, you know, they would, for example, like the woman who was caught in adultery, um, I was, I was taught that she was a prostitute when there's actually no, um, no scholarship to confirm that or verify it. Um, and, and I'm saying this because I am still untethering myself. Um, and I'm having my own personal reckoning. And this book that I wrote was like very much my own reckoning where it was like, I need to read the stories that are bypassed or gaslit or looked over or ignored. Um, I need to find, I need to find what exactly is in a sense, like awesome and terrific, right? I need to find what is so incredibly terrible in this and get to the heart of that. <clears throat> but also like, what does hope look like? You know, what does, what does liberation and healing look like in these, these places that are extremely terrifying? Um, but what can we, what, what can we learn from that? Um, and in that last sense, like the, what can we learn from that part? You know, I, I learned a few years back that what we think of as fairy tales now were all actually written as cautionary tales. Um, so a fairy tale, you know, happy ending, marriage, <laughs> the girl gets with the guy. Cautionary tale is something really bad happens and you're learning from this lesson. And um, for example, like one of the ones that I learned was at the end of the Little Red Riding Hood, the wolf devours red the grandma and the huntsman. And the story was actually to young women in the French court during the time of Versailles. And the moral was, if you lie with a wolf, you're going to be consumed. <laughs> and so I'm like, I, I, I was like in my own little like contemplative, like contemplative corner looking at these stories. And I'm like, okay, well, like I have been consumed by the wolf and the wolf was evangelicalism. The wolf was whiteness. The wolf was white supremacy. Um, what do I do to piece myself back together in my own reckoning with scripture? How do I find, how do I find the most terrible things in here and not like redeem them as good? Cause I don't think every story is redeemable, but to be able to say like, how do I look at this and say, this is what I've learned in order for us to heal and grow. Amen. Yeah. So, uh, so you talked about like the stories, right? And um, just sort of uh, looking for those stories in scripture and how you sort of learn and grow. I'm curious, like hearing all of um, the trauma, right? Like one of the things that I've tried to be a student of and I've really tried to be intentional about is to to listen to black women right I'm married to a black woman so I listen to her stories but also other black women's stories also other other women of color um because I want to understand I want to divest from the same patriarchal system that oppresses the very woman that I'm married to right I'm raising daughters I'm raising sons so like these are things that 
I've sort of I've tried to sort of intake. So in in hearing some of your stories, it's like, man, this is familiar. Mm. Um, just because of listening to my wife and other women. And it's heartbreaking, but at the same time, um, like you said, these things need to be learned from. There needs to be an accountability. These stories need, especially with, from women of color. So my question is like, with all of the trauma and all of these things, like what's your relationship like now with scripture? Which like, where do you find yourself now? Like even with um, with God and the church, like how how have you found yourself in that? Woo! That's the question. <laughs> Are you supposed to like wait thirty minutes before we get to that question? <laughs> My bad. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. It's good. <laughs> like, what is it? Um, yeah, I'm still a church girl. I preach. Um, it's an interesting dynamic because I preach at a church that's primarily second generation Asian and Latinx immigrants. Um, so it holds like one of my identities. It holds my husband's identity. Um, but as a black woman, I'm like one of two black women in the church. And so um, I like, <laughs> it's it's a really interesting dynamic, but it's also the church that I preach at, that we attend um, a pillar or foundation of their, of the church's repair. Um, and I, I really value that. Um, <clears throat> I think, um, I don't think I know, I'm very selective of what spaces I want to be in. Um, Cause it, it, sometimes you like walk away and you just feel like you need a shower, you know, <laughs> you're like, oh man, that was gross. But I, it's not just me who goes to church. I bring three kids under eight. I bring my husband, you know, and I like my family gets the rawest version of myself. So if I'm in an environment that is not good. I'm not going to say that I'm like lashing out on them, but now we like all of us have to come together and like figure out how to like divest from that. But our kids are also at this like young developmental age, you know? So it's like, how do we unteach what you just spent an hour learning, you know? And and that's like, that's my whole church bit. <laughs> um, it's complicated is where I'm at with church. Um, now my relationship with God is present. Um, I I'm smiling because I have decided to have what I'm calling my 20th century black girl summer. Um, so I read like beloved, I'm finishing the color purple. I'm currently reading their eyes are watching God. Um, I'm like, I'm hitting all the girls. Let me tell you, I'm hitting them of mules and men, like, and I, on, like, and, uh, <laughs> right, it was, I am enlightened and I'm delighted. I'm delighted to read these stories and I'm heartbroken with these stories and I'm lifted up with these stories. And in these stories, I thank God in a way that I can't describe, you know, baby, baby Shug, I'm baby Shug, right? No. Ducks. Thugs, thank you. I'm thinking Suge Knight and stuff. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Suge Knight, Suge Avery, baby Suggs. Yeah. I, I saw the Suge Trinity. Avery. You saw it. You yeah. saw yeah, my I brain. Saw, thank yeah. you. <laughs> I was like, oh, wrong. But like baby Suggs, holy, like she was described as having a listening way about her. And she never went to church, she never preached, never ministered um, in like the sense of church structure, but she had a way of listening and a way of embracing people and how she spoke. 
And that's what I want in my relationship with God. That's where I want to be. Um, and I guess, I mean, a part of me was like, man, that's like spiritual direction. That's like the purest form of spiritual direction. And that is where I want to be. So I'm in this space where like, I, I've loved reading since I was a little girl. You know, my parents couldn't afford the after school program. I was in the public library every day for like three hours. I was always reading, always writing. Um, and FYI, that's illegal now, just in case anyone's wondering. Uh, <laughs> you can't have a minor by themselves in the library for hours. Um, but I, yeah, my relationship with God is is deeply intertwined with me um, returning to my love of the written word of literature. And um, I don't really read the Bible that much anymore. I'll read the Bible like if it's on assignment, you know, like it's like, oh, Camille, we're preaching on this. I'm like, okay, I'll read this. Um, but one of my last conversations with a spiritual director I had a few years ago, um, she, I, I was telling her, like, I feel like a bad Christian because I'm not reading the Bible. And she was like, you remember so much of the Bible. Just go off what you remember and see what happens. And in effect, like the book was actually written off that of like me going off what I remember. Um, but also like my, my relationship to scripture is some, sometimes a passage will like pop up into my mind. I'll think about it. And I'm very playful with scripture now um, because play is healing and I really need to heal my relationship with the Bible. Um, and so if I, if something pops in my mind, I'll like write a poem or just like write about it, journal about it, sit with it, contemplate it um, and really play with the themes of it to not recreate a new story. Sometimes it is, um, but to find a new way to love it. Yeah, and this isn't a question, but this is just a comment. I feel like there's something beautiful about what you just described and how I experience you in general, especially when you look at the fact that many people, as they're divesting from toxic theologies, they're loud and they're Aww. usually loud and wrong, but also there seems to be that as one expands, they cannot have a relationship with God that is generative healing, right? You have to throw out everything and you have to throw out God, the relationship to scripture completely. And what you're describing as this works for you right now, where you are, and you're finding God in all of these places of Black discovery, Black womanhood, and your relationship is dynamic. And so that isn't antithetical to uh, the God whom we've come to know, right? We can find God in these rich Black stories. I mm. often tell people that that scene in the clearing and beloved is as precious to me as scripture. And I do read the Bible every day. That scene in the clearing, I actually quote it better than scripture. Like, <laughs> Oh, that's the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> that like that's it's just a sermon in the clearing sermon on the mount like that scene mm -hmm. is mm, yeah, mm, yeah. <laughs> i just love it. it i think it can point people to there is healing and there is a relationship that that you can have with god as you divest from harmful ideologies you can still find god out in the world 
right? And and so yeah. I love that you point to that. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that I'm really learning, and and this is one part of the reason that I asked you that is because like for me, but also there might be other people, like I'm learning that to find God in other places is literally God reaching for you. Like that mm-hmm. speaks to his ability to hold you. That speaks to his ability. That speaks to their ability to, to keep you. You know what I'm saying? Like that, that speaks to, for me, the wholeness of God and his love and his tender care. So yeah. um, I just wanted to add that to what Rob was saying. Golly, it's a whole lot of preaching going on right now. This is, <laughs> you, we can still find God in the clearing, in the, in the opening that is God reaching. Hold on, hold on. We're going to take an offering break right now. We're going we're gonna to pass the collection plate real quick. And we're going to resume, we're going to resume this, this conversation on the other side of this offering break right here. Cause y'all, y'all, y'all preaching, preaching. Before Sam, Rob, and myself were podcast co-hosts, we were friends. This podcast grew out of a friendship. And honestly, it's grown into something more of a podcast. It's now a community. You can take part in that community at patreon.com slash three black men, all the way spelled out. And in that community, you'll get early access to episodes, bonus content like writings, videos, even some live conversations that you can take part in. In the event that you'd like to support us but aren't ready to commit to Patreon yet, you can submit a one-time gift via PayPal, where you'll find us at 3blackmenpodcast at gmail.com. However you choose to support, we're thankful that you did. Let's get back to the show. All right, that was that was a heck of an offering break. I, I pray that your hearts and minds were clear, and you gave us the Lord directed you in that moment. Um, <laughs> and anyway, <laughs> um, Camille, one of the things that I admired about your book was the many layers of your identity and the complexity of the realities that that wrought that you brought to the table. Right. So, um, a moment ago, you were sharing about the church that you currently attend and and the demographics and things of that nature. But it was one part of the book that stood out to me because, um, unlike some some of the people here, like I, I don't share Rob or Sam's testimony in a way that I've never really delved into white evangelicalism apart from one stint in seminary, right? Um, and and so like there's this one part of my testimony um, that's missing in that way, and and you kind of spoke a little bit about like. Uh, the overlap between <laughs> y'all faces. Um, <laughs> you spoke about the 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 overlap between the purity messages of the white evangelical church and like the black Baptist tradition that you would um th- that you were a part of for a time, and how there is indeed an overlap, even if the motives or the origins or the thinking behind it might differ a little bit. And all of that seems to inform like the writing that you bring to the table, right? And so I guess my question here would be, how have all of these vantage points that you've been through, whether it be um, uh, a child of an, being the child of an immigrant or being uh, in a black Baptist church or uh, whatever phase you were in your life, how do you think that that has informed the readings that you now bring to all of the stories that, that ended up in the hero and the whore? Mm. I think that it's like a war inside of me, not to sound very dramatic about it, but there's just a lot of conflicting different um, opinions, thoughts, perspectives, histories. Um and yet I'm held in all of that. And that's really beautiful. And so 
um, when I approach a text or something, um, I allow myself to approach it with the fullness of who I am because that's who God imagined me to be. Right. Like I'm, I'm created from God's imagination. Um, and to silence a part of myself is to say God's imagination was not enough. Um, and so, yeah, I, I come in with the histories that I know, um, or the histories that I'm learning, um, and the people that I talk to and the people that I represent and it, I remind myself that it's a, it's an honor. It's like a glory and an honor to be able to do this and to do it unapologetically. Like I, you know, I, I think it's an Isaiah where not, it's not Isaiah. I don't know. There's like many places in scripture. One of them is an Isaiah where the word of God is considered a, a knife, um, double-edged sword, a hammer, a weapon. And um, I remember that that when I write, I write with precision. Um, and that precision comes from all that I am and all that I hold. Um, and being Filipino, like the a thing about me that people don't really know, that my husband didn't really know until like we had kids, is that I'm very into honorifics. Um, and honorifics are like, how do we honor our elders? Um, be it like your aunties or your uncles or your grandparents or even like your older brothers or sisters, your cousins in the Philippines, we have like language and naming this um, and also tradition and ritual behind it. Um, and in the same way, like in, in the black side of my family, like we have, um, there's dynamics and relationships and names and um, things that I am learning to love and reclaim. Um, and so because I'm someone who holds, clings very tightly to honorifics, because I believe that it's really important just for myself, um, I write with precision because it's a form of honorific to me. Yeah, I I love that. I could I would ask like five more questions about that, but I I will I want to hear more about how you experience purity culture both in the white evangelical church and in the black mm. church experience. And that that is rare that people have stories and insight into both, right? I one thing that blessed me is you really did try to give dignity to black church spaces. Yes. Right. Yes. And you, you, you really, yeah. I, I really felt that reach, right. You were able to different differentiate between the ways that purity culture manifested in both spaces. And while saying the impact is still harmful, right. In yeah. Spaces, right. <laughs> But there was this honor and dignity given to Blackness and Black spaces that is rare when yeah. people are divesting. And I also will say purity culture is just this thing that's thrown out there that people don't explain. There's this assumption that we all mean the same thing. So just talk a little bit about how you use it and how you saw it manifest differently in both spaces. Uh -huh. Yeah, I think that purity culture is predatory. Mm -hmm. 
you're setting up a system or an environment in which um, you need to use shame and uh, transaction as a way to build relationship. Um, and the currency of that is sex, right? So it's either you're giving sex, you're not giving sex, you're not supposed to have sex. Um, you're supposed to deny yourself, you know, in my Black Missionary Baptist Church, we talked about carnality all the time. um and like the carnal self and the carnal desire and how we have to deny that um but this is the thing about the black baptist church that was like my black missionary baptist church was such an important part of my life like a part of that was like my husband was the reverence kid so like i met my husband out of that church i'm not gonna talk boo-boo about the church that raised him you know (laughs) um but also like i I give dignity to, I do my best to give dignity to it, to it because it really bestowed so much dignity upon myself in like when I was 20, I was like 19 to 25. So like during that time, the end, the end time trauma informed nerdy stuff is like at 24, your brain stops developing. Um, so the last phase of my brain development was really like the last it was that time that I was in the black missionary Baptist church. And that was the time that I loved being black because before that people looked at me and they're like, Oh, you're whitewashed. Or like, you want to be white. Like it was known that I really wanted to be white. Cause I was this like suburban girl who was only raised around white and Asian kids and Asian people are like really mean <laughs> in my context growing up. And so I wanted to be white. But when I was in the black missionary Baptist church, there was like this love and this dignity that I had for my elders who cared for me so much in this place where I was experiencing like deep loneliness um and also like heartache and so um yeah I that is there's a when I was writing my chapter on purity culture there was understanding that like yeah purity culture is really predatory and it sucks but this is also the environment that bestowed so much dignity upon me so how do I hold that and how do I also say this was wrong how we approached it. And um, I think I was lucky enough to have a church mother who just like didn't play, you know? <laughs> she would just like, she'd be in the pews and be like, shit, like during like a bad sermon, you know? Like she, Mama Audrey like doesn't play around and she was very honest. And I, I'm so thankful to have just like been in her presence and have learned from her because she, she was the church mother. She loved the church. Um, and yeah, at the same time, she was like, this is a mess. Right. And, and was really honest about it. And so I think I'm steering away from the question, but let me get back to it. And so when it came to like purity culture, seeing it in, in the black missionary Baptist church, I have seen the way that like, unfortunately we've used, our roles within the church to overpower people. We've used lessons to overpower people, but also like the great irony of like the church, like the engine of the church is run off the labor of black women. And yet it controls the bodies of black women. And I, I, I like so thoroughly wanted to understand like, how is it that we run this place that hurts us? And I had to look into like, the history of purity culture in the evangelical context, but also like the history of white Christian nationalism and how <clears throat> how like Reagan, who he is looking up at us, is the way I'm gonna say this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> 
Girl. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but like how this man created a platform off of historical violence done to black women and how we accepted it as theology in the black church to hold to like hold back our bodies, but also the welfare our- queen. The image. welfare queen, yeah, yes. for people who are unaware, yeah. Yes, my purity, yes, the welfare queen. But like, how? What is the relationship and the dynamic between the welfare queen and like the pure virgin? And how do we see that happen in the Black Missionary Baptist Church? Um, and I, and it, it was, it was really challenging. That was probably one of the more complicated like strategic chapters to write because there are times when I was with my editor and she was like this isn't making sense and I was like no it makes sense to me like I I just don't know how to explain it to you but like I can see everything um yeah Yeah, and yeah (laughs) I also think it's difficult right like uh Dr. Yolanda Pierce talks in my grandmother's house about Mm -hmm. some of those dynamics of teaching black women especially to be chaste and pure but from a protective stance and she she talks extensively about like, there seem to be all these religious rules on black girls. But as she grew up, she realized these black church mothers were trying to protect her in an age where men were abusive, sexually yes. abusive, promiscuous, all those things. And so these rules that were shameful in some ways were actually meant to protect, you know, w- women from predators, which sounds so yeah. intense, but there were survival mechanism and survival tools. And so I think what I saw in that chapter is like this reach towards how can we be better, but we also must recognize that these tools were meant to protect young people and the black experience from harm, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's the negotiation, right? We live in a world where the negotiation is present, but we don't talk about the negotiation, how we live outside of it. And like, Okay, I just finished reading chapter two of Their Eyes Are Watching God. And <laughs> Jamie's talking to her grandma and her grandma's forcing her to get married. And Jamie's like, I don't want to get married. You just saw me kiss a boy. And her grandma's like, no, now you're a woman and I'm getting old and I can't protect you. So you have to be married so that I know that God is protecting you, right? And, and that's like a negotiation that is documented in a book written over a hundred years ago, uh, almost a hundred years ago. And so I, I think, yeah, how do we we can't live outside of the negotiation of like safety if we can't even identify all of the pillars or at least some of the pillars that have caused us to have to like create ultimatums in order to create safety for our black girls and our black women. I mean, in in the black missionary Baptist church, I can't tell you how many times we had like a black woman, young black woman come up and talk about how she was praying for marriage. And she was praying that God would give her a husband. And that was something that we applauded and we like loved. And we, we, we wanted because we just didn't know. We didn't know the pillars or identify them in the way that helped us understand that like, yeah, we can take care of each other instead of saying, let's put you into, let's force you into a marriage or let's like pray intentionally for you to get married instead of focusing on like your wholeness as a human being. And that's, that's another part of purity culture being transactional is that there is no pursuit of wholeness. There is the pursuit of like holiness, but who defines that? And, and how, how do you raise, in my context, I'm speaking for women, right? How do you raise a girl to be a good transaction? 
And that's really what purity culture does. And you so you would have to see her less. You would have to see her not as a girl. A hundred percent. You have to not see her as a woman. Mm-hmm. You have to see her as a woman. And then you know that goes back to the chapter that I wrote on. Um, wow, it just left my mind. But the chapter I wrote on the adultification of black girls that we don't get to see black girls as girls, we see them as women, and that's another part of purity culture. It's another dynamic that we have to deal with. Yeah, I sense in your writing and the way that you approach these stories a prophetic witness to how the stories we've inherited bear on the present that we now uh, live in, right? And I say that because I try to be careful around these things. A lot of the New Testament stories that we have have been interpreted and handed down to us in ways that are inherently anti-Semitic. I try not to duplicate that process, right? Mm -hmm. But a lot of uh, the critique that you bring are directly in line with what Jesus brings to the text. Like, no, there is a reason that we have these stories, but at the same time, we need to look at what we've built around them that is no longer serving the wholeness and health of of humanity and of community, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and that is the very work of Jesus saying that, yes, God is, yes, there is a truth. There, there is a, a thing that God has for us, but we need to be able to, to untangle some of the stuff that we've built around what we think we heard from God in order mm -hmm. to actually go where God is leading us to, to the liberty and the, and the liberation. Right. And I think that the way that you laid that out was so deft, right. Um, even to the end of <laughs> The, the the conclusion, I was I was uh, I, I was waiting because there, there is no real conclusion, right? Right. You, you go you go through uh, the 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 woman caught in adultery and one of the the, the illest bars of all time to close the book, <laughs> and then into an epilogue, right? Into the, the letter to the survivors and everything, and it's almost like the ascension, right? You leave us wanting more, and you're like, no, like th this is where we depart, and 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 the work goes from here. And in that sense, I, and I know that the, the primary audience, and as you said a moment ago, you're primarily speaking to and for women here, um, there's an invitation into doing the work of imagining better realities for us in the here and now based upon the love of God and understanding that what we have received is a mere facsimile. And in many cases, a poor facsimile of what that looks like, but but clothed in the garments of righteousness and religion and orthodoxy um, that, that that we've been taught to admire without questioning whether or not we should. And so I don't have a question at the end of this, but I did want to affirm uh, that what you've done in this book here is is going to chink away at some of those chains that are keeping people bound um, into unhealthy places and and help lead a couple of people in into a land called freedom and that's dope that's what we've been about all season right liberation um yeah <laughs> freedom and all that stuff and and um thank you <laughs> thank thank you for 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 that fuel uh that fuel for freedom and liberation that you've given us here you know thank you yeah um i i wanted to speak to or like 
so I appreciate the freedom with which you carry yourself and even like that which you write with. Um, I wanted to ask, like, do you ever feel like, and this is partly for me, but also like, again, for people who are listening, they may feel like me. Um, you ever, do, do you ever, has there been a point where you've, or is there a point where you feel like maybe, um, you're too much, like you're, you're too free in the expression? Like, do you feel like, do you ever second guess your yourself I guess is what I'm saying like when you sit down to write and say you know I'm gonna publish this as I'm gonna write do you ever do you ever second guess like um the amount of freedom that you've allowed yourself to express in said writing or in said um you I hope I'm framing this no, question okay the answer yeah. is 100% of the time 100% 100% of the time <laughs> that was easy that yeah was easy. I I I have a very tight knit community of kinfolk that I reach out to and I'm like, Hey, I'm going to write about this. What do you think? Robert's one of them. And he, poor Robert, like really applause to Robert. Cause sometimes I just send him some stuff and I'm like, this is what I'm thinking. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and he's like, uh, I don't think that's good. Same thing with my husband. I'll like walk into a room that he's like playing a video game in. And I'm like, did you know, blah, 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 blah. And then like, isn't that so stupid? And then walk out and he's like, like I was playing Diablo <laughs> 4 like what is, what is this you know <clears throat> I what's interesting about that question is that I am a survivor of many types of violence mm -hmm. and um a part of trauma is that you don't know how to trust yourself so it's, it's mm -hmm. interesting to me that people think I come off as someone who trusts herself because I spent the last four or five years in therapy mm -hmm. building self-trust out of nothing mm -hmm. um and like I grew up in a very codependent environment because we had to be in order to survive. And so, um, yeah, there is, I, I, I trust what I write now because frankly, I didn't write for those 10 years that I was in evangelicalism because I, no one would have approved. No one mm -hmm. would have said yes or think it was okay. I think the last like in the last few months of my time at evangelical is in like an evangelical church. Someone was like, wow, I didn't know you could do that. And I was like, yeah, I've <laughs> this for a long time, but I didn't trust myself. And mm -hmm. unfortunately in a lot of religious spaces, you learn how to not trust yourself. And so I think that the freedom that I present is actually not a complete picture a freedom and as you know as Trey said I, I, there's no conclusion I'm because I because I have not concluded yet right <laughs> I am still in pursuit right. mm -hmm. um and I think the most I think one of the most like challenging things as an author especially as a a Christian author who's writing about like healing from spiritual abuse the very specific niche right is to not claim yourself as an authority um and it's, and that's something that like I struggle with because um, you see so many people who are like, well, I'm an authority on this. Let me teach you about how this operates. Let me teach you about how this works. Um, and that's not freeing because you're not, you know, my master's degree is in education. So I, I love learning about education. I love like education as a human development. There's no freedom in that type of education. It's, it's authoritative. It goes back to terror, terrific and terrifying. 
right? Mm -hmm. Because you have to believe in what this one person says instead of finding the answer for yourself. Um, yeah, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of things that I wrote even now where I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to throw up when people read that. Like <laughs> I'm going to vomit when someone <laughs> asks me a question on this chapter. Yeah. Um, but it it's like, it's something that had, it, it's a part of a conversation that I felt like had to exist. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, as we get ready to wrap up, I have a comment and then, <laughs> um, Listen, just want to tell you what it is. I want to say that I experience this work as constructive work. It's thoughtful. You're actually giving, even though you're not giving people conclusions, as what uh, Trey said, you are giving people breadcrumbs to find home, right? You are mm -hmm. giving them containers that can contain possibilities, potentialities, right? And that's beautiful work. And I think there's so much in expansive Christianity, progressive Christianity, that is really evangelical light, right? Like remix, right? Like, <laughs> like, like 2.0. Yeah. Like you were spiritually abused over here. Now I get spiritually abused over here. You know, like, okay. hey. Um, but it's like you actually give people breadcrumbs to home. And I love that in this book, you're very thoughtful with the people that you cite and, and whatnot. And, and so like, as we wrap up two questions, where can people find you and your work? You have a tenuous relationship with social media. So, <laughs> so there's an asterisk with where people can find you, uh, depending on the lunar cycle, um, where can people find you uh, and if you've eaten or not. And then what, what do you want to say to people who are thinking about getting your book? Like what, you not sell yourself, but like, what is one sentence that you would say one or two sentences on your book? Um, yeah. Where can people find you? Uh, give the hopeful reader uh, something to look forward to. Um, where can people find me? Um, so the two platforms that I post regularly are TikTok and Instagram. Um, basically, if it's a writing, because the internet is like, like a child's diaper filled with diarrhea right now overflowing like that's how like the writing platforms are <laughs> see how i said the lunar cycle <laughs> like, <laughs> just, just tell people yo at <laughs> if you are a parent you understand like this is how i feel when i look at it i'm like oh my god <laughs> like there's not enough baby wipes for this um so yeah, I'm on, I, I am on spill. I'm kind of on Twitter, but I'm actually just lur lurking and judging people. So I'm not posting. Um, I'm on threads because it's easier to put a threads post onto Instagram. Now I'm not using up my Google photo space, just FYI. Um, but every, every username is the same, which is at writer Camille. Um, and then I do have a Substack, and that's where, I write my best things. Um, and that is Camille Hernandez.substack.com. I highly recommend my Substack. I love it. I spent a lot of time. We recommend co-sign co that one. You don't get only co-sign. Yeah. <laughs> hey. On the premium yeah. giant too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then a sentence about my book. 
maybe a sentence for someone who maybe was where you were, you know, 10 years ago, and they are trying to make their way home to freedom, but undoubtedly they have fear too, right? Mm -hmm. So what would you tell them? I would tell them that there comes a time in your life where you have this self-awareness or like not even self-awareness, but there, let me read, let me backtrack, remix. The moment that you are conscious of the fact that our survival stories are holy is the moment when the journey begins. Boom. Amen. Amen. Yeah. If y'all want to continue the conversation, y'all could do that on patreon.com slash three black men. Camille, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for sharing your words with the world and with us here at Three Black Men. We are so excited uh, for the hero and the whore to release uh, to the world. Thank you for letting us read it first. <laughs> You're welcome. You yeah, for sure. <laughs> Amen. We appreciate you rocking with us for another episode of Three Black Men. Here's the part of the show where we ask a favor from you. Now, earlier I mentioned a couple of ways that you can support us by joining our community over at patreon.com slash three black men. We have multi-tiered support options and you can get bonus content. If you don't want to do that, you can submit a one-time contribution by finding us on PayPal at three black men podcast at gmail.com. But we ain't here to tap your pockets. Here's a few ways that you can help us out without spending a single dime. You can stop what you're doing right here, right now, and make sure that you've left us a review and a rating. Don't just give us the five stars. Go ahead and write out how much you love this show and tell everybody about it. Do it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you at. Make sure you leave that rating and a review, and that's going to help even more people join the fun over here. Thank you so much. I knew God loved you for some reason. Thank you.